following message is by a guest speaker of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Uh, I want to share with you a message called Led by the Spirit. And I know that that's a topic you've been hearing a lot about lately. I want to draw from a very rich passage, um, Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 to 25. And I'm going to read that whole passage for you, but there is no way in 30 minutes I could possibly dig into a passage this rich. So I'm going to emphasize only a few very important practical things that I would like you to see out of these verses. Here's what the Word of God says. And I'm not sure if I'm doing this right. There we go. Okay. It says, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. I shared with you, as Pastor Peter just did, that we spent the last week um, in Louisville. And for the first time, this was a historic gathering because for the first time, all 12 pastors in the Thrive Network gathered together in one place for a prolonged fellowship. And the reason I'm, I think this is important is because there are two levels at which we pursue the Christian life. One is at the <clears throat> level of structures and ideas and organizations. That's the framework or infrastructure of the faith. But the other layer is the relational. And that holds true even for our relationship with God. We say that Christianity is not a religion. It's a relationship. And yet most Christians tend to pursue God in the form of religion far more than the form of relationship. We're actually more comfortable with religion than relationship. And so I noticed something profound happened when we all got together and stayed at this house, this old house built in the 1830s. 
Uh, I think there were some ghosts in that house somewhere because it was a really old house. But as we got together, the Thrive Network, which was once a structure, a, an ethos, a whole bunch of paperwork and government filings, suddenly began to feel like something real because we also established real relationships among those who lead it. And some of these guys, though we had exchanged emails, had glimpsed each other, this is the most time we've spent together in one place. And some new relationships formed from among the pastors of the network. And that, that was really instructive for me as an experience, is how important it is not to reduce the Christian faith simply to ideas and structures, but to always remember that relationships matter. If you want a lesson for how important relationships are, all you have to do is look at the youth group. The youth group in every church is held together by relationships. And I remember what that was like when I was in youth group. How I learned eventually to look forward to meeting with God, but how desperately I needed to see my friends. And that's an important thing that we also translate later to when we come to know God, is that we don't just want to know God up here. We want to relate to Him as though He were a real person in our lives. I know that at Refocus Weekend, Dr. Walborn taught very capably about the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Was that a good weekend? It was awesome. A lot of it happened in this room, and some powerful things happened for, for a lot of our people, myself included, in this very room. And I know that for the last couple Sundays, um, Steve has been preaching on the role of the Holy Spirit in our daily life. Now, there's a difference between me and Steve. He will give you the depth of theology, he will describe the inner workings of everything. Uh, and in comparison, I will sound like a monkey pointing at something. <laughs> but, l- listen, I'm not insecure about that. I know what my gifts are, what his gifts are. <laughs> Once in a while, if you see a monkey pointing vigorously and you follow his finger, he might point at something you have to see. And that's what I hope to do <laughs> this morning. Um, I'm not a deep, sophisticated person, but I I think some of the greatest things that God has taught me are in the simplicity of what it is to follow and know Him. You know, he starts off this passage in verse 13 making a really important statement. He says, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. And right away you see something profound, that the Apostle Paul frames the Christian life and the gospel itself largely as a gift of freedom. One of the greatest things Jesus accomplished for us through the gospel was he set us free. Now that's a beautiful word, and especially if you're in America, freedom is such an important word. It's become something different. It's not freedom from, but it's freedom to, right? That's, that's how we understand freedom in America. Forget freedom from. I'm not, I don't need deliverance from anything. I just want to be free to do whatever I want. But in the beginning, it started as freedom from. Freedom from oppression, freedom from rule that was not representative, and all of those things. So the question is, what is it? that sits at the heart of Christian freedom. What did he set us free from? Uh, um, For starters, he set us free from the need to be good enough for God. Some people live in that bondage all their lives to try to be good enough for, and it starts with our parents. Our parents often, listen to this. I, I say this to a lot of parents. I say this to my wife and I say this to myself. 
Our nagging voice becomes the soundtrack of our children's lives. Every time they do something questionable for the rest of their lives, they won't hear their own voice. Often they won't hear the voice of God. They will hear your voice. What are you doing? Have you finished your homework? Why are you just sitting around? And because that's the way we often grow up, haunted by a constant voice that says, you're not good enough, keep going, work harder, do this, we start to freak out. And we come to God thinking, I have to be better in order to to be acceptable to God. In the gospel of Jesus, he frees us from ever having to try. That doesn't mean it doesn't matter that we're good or not. It just means we don't have to become good enough for God. He does that for us in some very profound ways. And he frees us from the self-hatred and the shame and the regrets that are produced by our own sin. You know, I really appreciate our brother's prayer this morning. Often when you do the prayer for the church, it begins with intercession or just glorifying God. But I loved how Alan began with a word of repentance. That's so important. That's our first move when we come to God is we acknowledge in all the things I know that are right, I haven't done them well, but I want to. And I want to honor my God in that. And so there's this freedom from our own sin. There's a freedom even from the paralyzing, life-draining pain caused by the sins of other people. That's huge for me. I didn't realize how much the gospel frees us even from the damage other people's sin has done to us. And this is not an exhaustive list, but uh, I will close with this. Um, He also frees us from the slavish need to give in to every single craving and desire that crosses our mind. That's huge. We once had no choice. We were slaves to everything that we wanted to do. And because Christ set us free, we now have a new capacity, new ability to choose other things. So if we are this free because of the gospel, why doesn't it always feel like we're free? I can't be the only Christian in this room that struggles with that tension. I know I'm free, but some days my life feels like a terrible rerun and it ends the same way every time. Dang it! I know that's, is that, is that a bad, can I say dang it? Because that, <clears throat> I haven't numbed you guys away. I've already numbed my own church. So I just don't, I don't know what's allowed here, but that's what I feel in my spirit when I mess up over and over. When I want to be free, I really want to be righteous and holy and set apart. I want to live for God in every moment of my day. And so often, as the day draws to a close, I look over the the day and I think, dang it! What is my problem? I'm supposed to be free, but I don't really feel free. I still feel in many ways like I live in bondage. I'm stuck, and I can't seem to move forward. Why is it the case that Christ has set us free, but I don't always feel completely free? I I think we could explain that uh, a couple of ways. One is that the freedom he gave us is an actual freedom. I hear people speak as if they would prefer that at the cross, Jesus turned us into robots. It's like, I'm so tired of this. Why can't God just come and make me stop liking these bad things? Why can't he come and just control my behavior? Would you really want that? 
Do you really want to come to Jesus and lose your freedom so that he will make you do everything good and right? It would make things easier, especially come the judgment day. The truth is, the freedom he gave us is a gift because it's a real freedom. A real freedom. We have the power and the authority to still choose what we want to do and who we want to serve and follow. See, before that wasn't the case. Before, the only voice, the only authority I had was me or other people. The desires that come from my own flesh and the desires imposed on me by other people that either I respected or had power over me, that's what defined my whole life, right? Some of us are living in that right now, especially this front section, is the only voice we have are other people and our own voice. But I'll tell you something. When Christ sets us free, what happens is suddenly I don't have to do everything I want to do. I don't have to do everything others want to do. I suddenly gain a new capacity. I can also choose to do things that God wants me to do. And before Jesus met me and found me and rescued me, that wasn't a possibility. I had zero interest in what God wanted before I became a Christian. It's like a new variable added to the math equation that wasn't there before. Have you ever thrown a new variable into a math equation? Any math teachers? Yeah. If you just randomly throw another letter in there, it screws everything up. It creates a whole new problem. Jesus did that for us. At the cross, he said, you don't have to obey only the voice in your own heart and flesh or only the voices of other people. You now have a new ability, a new capacity to care about, to hear, and to respond to the voice of God himself who has a plan for your life. And it's a better plan than the one you had for yourself. So that's one reason why our freedom doesn't always feel like it's freedom because we still have to steward it. We're not on autopilot. He has given us the ability to choose. But there's a second reason why that freedom isn't always feeling like freedom. And that's because our freedom is not exercised in a vacuum. We carry out our lives in a context of war and conflict. Every day, every moment of our lives, we are at war whether you recognize it or not. And some of us know very well what that feels like because that's exactly how we feel in this moment. Spiritual warfare is real. Every day, we live in the context of an enemy, an adversary who hates God and hates us. I think we forget how much he hates us. We know he hates God, but he hates your guts. You disgust him because you have access to things he can't. It is envy on steroids. It is malice, pettiness, bitterness at a level you cannot imagine. That is what God's enemy feels for you and me. And his greatest desire is to make sure that you grow to hate God and yourself as much as he does. Do you understand that? That's what he's after. He wants you to hate God and hate yourself. And if you could throw this other thing in, he wants you to hate everybody too. That's his self-destructive agenda all the time. And the, the scary part is there still remains in the heart of every Christian a part of our nature that wants those things too. It's called the flesh, the sin nature. It doesn't completely get erased at the foot of the cross. That's why there are some days when it feels good to be angry. Is that okay? Can I 
suggest that? I mean, you guys are staring at me like, who is this non-Christian at the pulpit? Am I the only one who sometimes, oh, it feels good to just be ticked off, to just rage. Sometimes the sound of Christian radio makes me so happy and godly. Shut up. Right? Do you ever feel these things where there's a side inside of you that wants the same things that Satan wants? You want to be mad at everybody so you don't have to blame yourself for anything, right? That feels good. My problems are everyone else's fault. And because we have an enemy who loves you, every time he hears us say those things, he goes, yeah, yeah. I, you know, in some African-American churches, there are, there are two big burly dudes that stand behind the preacher. And every time he says something good, he goes, yeah. <laughs> and they repeat a word or two of what he said to just back him up. That's how Satanist does. Every time we have these self-destructive, ungodly thoughts, he goes, yeah. That's right. It is them, not you. And he's at war against us all the time, which is why even though we have a freedom, it's not a freedom to just run through the tulips all day. God, here I... You know, like you're running, and then someone's got his foot out. He's trying to trip you up all the time. It's so annoying. You wish you could just be free. But that freedom is exercised in a state of constant conflict and war. And so the choices we make in our freedom is to respond to one of these two spirits that are at war. It says the flesh, which is a spirit inside of me and the spirit of God's enemy, that flesh, that spirit wants one thing and the spirit of God wants another thing and they cannot be made to agree, right? They cannot be made to agree at all. They want polar opposite things, so you cannot reconcile the flesh and the spirit of God. Can we all just get along? Look, flesh, what do you want? God, what do you want? How about this 50-50? There's nothing like that in scripture. There's no such thing in the universe as a 50-50 meet me halfway compromise between the flesh and the spirit of God. They want things that are absolutely opposite of each other. And those two spirits are always at conflict inside of us, which is why whenever we feel that tension, the choices we're allowed to make with our freedom are to choose to obey, to surrender to, to follow one of those spirits pulls or the other. I found this really low-res picture. (laughs) It hurts me to put something like that on the screen, but it's the only picture I could find that looks like this, okay? Okay. And that's the way it sometimes feels to us. But that's the wrong and this unbiblical picture of what our situation is. But that's the way it feels. It's like there's God and there's my own sin nature and the enemy. And they're pulling at me. I'm just a piece of rope in between a helpless victim. Ah, I hate living like this. Torn one way or the other, one way or the other. That's the way it can feel. But that is not actually the reality of our situation. We are not nearly as helpless or passive in this conflict as a picture like that would suggest. Let me give you a better picture, okay? Anyone who knows me well knows that, that the, I am a very, very courageous man, okay? You should just know I, I fear nearly nothing. But there's one thing I'm very afraid of, and that is deep, dark water. Deep, dark water. If I, I remember being on a cruise with my wife, and I went to the deck at night, and I looked over the edge. It was about like a 10-story drop down to the ocean. 
And I remember thinking, if I accidentally fell over, I would die of fright before I actually hit the water. I'd just be like, forget it, I'm done. I won't even try to swim. I'm just going to die right now because I can't handle this. Who knows what's lurking under there? And, you know, and just a helpless feeling. Imagine you're on, at sea and you're on a boat and you fall over the edge and you're in the, the raging ocean. That to me is the worst thing that could possibly happen to me in this world. That's how weird I am. That's the scariest thing I could come up with. Now, part of it is the hopelessness of it because I can tread water for a good 30 minutes and then I will surely die. I mean, there's just, I'll run out of steam. So there's a hopelessness in it because you're like, I could fight for a while, but what's the point really? Because I can't fight forever. And this ocean's huge and it's not like I can swim for sure. So what do I do? And in that raging storm, all you feel is the downward pull of the ocean. And people have fallen into such seas. When you hear their testimonies, when you read it, this is why I'm so screwed up, because I read those testimonies, and they say, it's as if the sea were alive and, and was full of malice, and it hated me in particular. It felt personal, not like a force of nature, but like a personal enemy trying to pull me down. And every time I tried to fight, it just pulled me down more. When I finally got a breath, it would crash a wave into my face. And that's how they testify. If feel, all you can feel is this thing wants to suck me under. Now imagine in the midst of that hopeless despair, you hear, and you look up, and there's a bright light that pierces the darkness, and there's an orange thing flying in the sky. It's a U.S. Coast Guard helicopter. Now imagine what that would feel like. And as you see that light, and it's found you, it lowers a rope down, and you grab hold of that rope. And in that moment, you're stuck between two opposing forces, aren't you? You're right in the middle. There is this massive ocean that wants to pull you under, and if you stay in it long enough, it will get you. There's no way to fight it. You're not big enough, strong enough. You don't have enough endurance to fight that ocean, no matter how vigorous and healthy you are. You will lose by yourself. And then there's this little rope. It represents hope. The rope of hope. Yeah, that one's free. The rope of hope. And you're holding it, and suddenly, whereas it was just the downward pull and nothing but loss and defeat, that rope starts to give you, because now there's tension. You're in the middle, pulled in two directions, but now there's a new thing, a new force, a tension that wants to pull you up. And in that moment, here's why you're not just a helpless rope in a tug of war. You have a very important choice to make in your freedom. You can put all your energy into treading water and kicking that ocean. I'll try to get up to your helicopter. It's the stupidest thing you could do. But that's what we do so much of the time. In our fight against sin, in our fight against unholiness, worldliness, darkness, we put, put all the focus on our fighting. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to just kick this ocean. And that would be sensible if there were no rope. If it was just you versus the sea, then by all means, at least fight. Don't go out like a wuss. Fight. I hate when in the movies, a person's about to get killed, kneel, and they just kneel. I'm like, no, I'm not kneeling. Let's go, man. You have to shoot me while I'm punching you because I'm not going to go out like a punk. So if, if you have no rope, at least fight. That's the best you can do. But 
when a rope comes down from a helicopter and is trying to rescue you, the stupidest way to use your focus and energy is to keep fighting the ocean. The choice you have to make in your freedom is to hold on to that rope with all your might because that's where salvation is coming from. Do you understand what I'm talking about here? Is in our fight against sin, the greatest ground we gain is not in looking at sin in the face and fighting it. It is looking upward to God and saying, you are my rescue. Above all other things, I will cling on to you. You're trying to pull me up. And if I just keep looking at the world that's trying to pull me down, looking at my own dark heart, looking at my family, whatever else I think is the enemy, and I try to fight it, I will lose. The greatest hope we have is to hold on to the rope of hope. That rescue which comes down from above that says, if you will put all your energy to clinging onto this, onto me, I will rescue you. Look at the language. Now you understand the picture, right? You're like, what is that? Is this guy trying to sell a CrossFit membership or something? That's why, because it's just hanging onto a rope. He says, look, look, he says, walk by the Spirit. Later on, he says, be led by the Spirit. And still further on, verse 25, he says, keep in step with the Spirit. Now, when I was a younger preacher, I would read all the commentaries, and I, you know, I'm going to get exactly right, and I would give the subtle, nuanced difference between walk, be led by, keep in step with. I don't do that anymore. I just, what's the difference, really? Are you going to grow because you're like, oh, I'm, am I walking or am I being led by? I don't know, or am I keeping a step with? Like, do you really want to spend your time trying to slice and dice every nuance? Or do you want to understand that what God is saying is, if you want to live a victorious, holy life, you got to have a communion and a connection with his Holy Spirit. There has to be an actual relationship between you and his Holy Spirit, and it has to be one in which he takes the lead and we follow. That's what being led by, walking with, keeping in step with is I'm moving and I'm moving at a pace and a direction set by another. And that's what matters most in all of this is not to fine tune what each one of those Greek words means, but to zoom out and see the bigger picture, which is there is no hope for victorious life apart from a real relational connection to the Holy Spirit of God. See, the Holy Spirit of God is God living inside of us. And he speaks to us constantly. He prompts our hearts. Sometimes he does it so vividly, it feels just like you're hearing an audible voice. If you've never had that experience, it will come if you walk with Jesus long enough. He will talk to you. And sometimes he will say to you in a way that no other human being can, loved one, what you are doing is not good. It's wrong. It offends the heart of God and it's destroying your life. Many people would try to say those words to you, but when the Holy Spirit says them, you will actually hear. You will have no fight left in you. You will respond if you really hear him. It's the same way pastors feel about their congregations. You say something for 10 years and then you invite a guest speaker, and that, that dude walks up and goes, yeah, what he said for 10 years, I'm saying. Everyone's like, oh, my goodness. What a great thought. Like, 
Who comes up with this stuff? Um, I did for like 10 years. I was saying all day long for 10 years. But this guy comes up one time, and he, oh, changed my life. And that guy is part of your testimony for the rest of your life. (laughs) Oh, that refocus weekend. That's the burden, but (laughs) this is not therapy for me. I should move on. The point is this. When God speaks truly, he also gives you ears to hear. And if you're listening for the Holy Spirit, he can say things to you that everyone else has been saying, but you will actually hear it for the first time. And you won't do it for your parents, and you won't do it for your friends or your pastor or anyone else. You, will, you won't even do it for yourself. You will do it for your Savior because he loves you and he has said something to you that is for you and not against you. Sometimes he'll just say, look, you're confused, you're hurt, look at me. This is where you want to come. And he will cheer you on. He will support you. He will heal you. He will speak the words of affirmation that people won't. There are people in this room right now who have been waiting all their lives to hear their mother or their father give one unconditional word of affirmation. I just love you. Not, I love you because you did the dishes. I love you because your SAT grade was 1,580. But that last 20, why not? Just, you know. (laughs) Right? It won't be like that. He will affirm us to the depths of our souls and that piece of unfinished business, we could close the loop on that. I'm loved. I'm worthy. I'm accepted because he will say those things to you in ways that nobody else could. As I land this plane, I've been thinking about how to illustrate this idea of a real relationship with the Holy Spirit. Because in a way, how do you talk about a relationship with a God who is everywhere and in fact even inside of us? So I thought, I was looking around my world and I saw my kids. <laughs> I have only teenagers now. Uh, my oldest is actually beyond the teen years. And I thought about the nature of the teenage, like if you were doing a BBC Life special on the American teenager, it might say something like this. He rises from slumber immediately puts his earbuds into his ear orifice, shuts out the outside world, and begins to look at the portal of life. (laughs) I mean, that's the nature of a teenager's life. From the moment of awaking, of consciousness, (sighs) and if, if your parents are wise and charge the phone in their room, you're doing the army crawl, just... Right? <laughs> Got to get that phone. So that's what it is. And these devices are a world unto themselves, but they are also a way of shutting out the world. And what I noticed is my teenagers have this way of, just like I know the Holy Spirit's there. I mean, duh, he's there all the time. That's the way they feel about me. I, Dad's, you know, see background scenery. Dad's there all the time. There have been days when I've traveled for three days, come back and like, Hey, I'm home. Like, where were you? <laughs> you didn't even notice I was gone for three days? That's, you know why they don't notice? Because they're in their little world. They acknowledge at some level intellectually I exist. But there's no engagement. And you know what, parents? We do the same thing to our kids. 
We notice their grades, their behavior, and that's it. Unless you bring a D or unless you punch your sister in the face, it's like your background scenery to me too. So in family life, is a great illustration, we technically know the others exist, but there's virtually no engagement that is not elicited by some misbehavior or some need. The hungry teenager emerges from his cave because hunger beckons him forth. Then he sees the maternal unit and he says, mm, food. And you get food and you go, I'm done with you. And he retreats back into the cocoon because that's how we relate to each other. And that's how we actually relate to God so much of the time. I know he's there, but there's no engagement, is there, really? If there is, it's not enough. It's not enough to call it a relationship. It's maybe enough to call it an acquaintance. Imagine the change that would happen for this family if the teenager says, "Uh, Mom, I know you're busy cooking, but could I ask your advice about something? So once the paramedics have revived her, she would come (laughs) up from that state and say, wait, you're actually asking me to speak into your life. Yeah, you... You wiped my butt since I was little. You raised me, feed me every day. I think you're pretty smart because you're alive still. And you're like a thousand years old and you still made it. So I feel like I want to ask you to speak into my life. You know how your parents speak into your life whether you want it or not? Are you really going to wear that to church, sweetheart? You know, that kind of thing, right? They're always speaking into your life. But what if you actually ask them in humility and with love? You are more than just the food unit. You're more than the money unit. You are my mother or father. And I have a sense that if I open my heart to you, you might actually really love me and there might be something you really want to say to me. And if I actually hear you, it might be good for me, not bad for me. I thought about that often because I think that I am God's teenager. I think that I am God's 16-year-old. I can't get into a car without turning on a podcast so that Todd Atkins or Daniel M. or someone else is shouting in my ear all day long. Talk to me, talk to me, talk to me. I don't want to waste a single second. Constant productivity, max engagement. And God just goes, I would totally love to say a thing if I could just somehow, (laughs) just kind of look, you know, there's no, no room, no opening. And what if we just said, God, time out. Do you have anything for me? Can you imagine on a daily basis if we paused to really engage God in us, God with us, and said, look, I can't do this by myself. You are here. You are with me. You are for me. You are to be honored. You have a plan for my life. I won't ignore you. And then wonder why it's so hard. My son just came back from his ACTs and he said, so, I'm so mad. I, I ran out of time again on this one section. Do you know what I have been telling him for a long time? Because I have taken and rocked. I'm, I took the ACT and just kicked it in the, you know, <laughs> just. <laughs> I'm like, okay, I know the secret, son. Secret is brute force repetition of questions. You just work through about 10,000 sample questions until you're so sick of it and it's no longer new to you. The way they ask questions. 
If you could just do that, you would crush it the next time. Yeah, it's not my problem, actually. It's not how it works. All right, then. You asked, I spoke. You blew it off. Welcome to the world at 22. Right? That's a low ACT score, by the way. So I'm just saying. Like, so <clears throat> 20, not 22 years old, but I'm saying, look. Um, and that's not his score. I'm just saying that if you don't listen, you don't grow. Do you know what I mean? He is trying so hard to cheer for you, to root you on, to correct your course, to empower you, to correct you. He wants that same godly, victorious life you yearn for but think is imaginary, impossible. He wants it for you. But we don't listen as well as we think we listen. We say we listen to God, but really we listen only when we agree. We rarely pause and say, speak to me. I, I just am listening for you. I'm going to close by sharing this book with you. The next slide, if you could. Um, it's a book called The Practice of the Presence of God. It was written in the late 1600s. So when a book survives for more than 400 years, you should pay attention to a book like that. I mean, the Bible is the first book, of course. But 99% of the books being written today, I can't even find on the bookstore shelves two years from now. It's been there, done that. This book, though, it, it tells a story of an uneducated French soldier named Nicholas Herman who met God in a profound way and became a Carmelite monk. And upon becoming a monk, he was called Brother Lawrence. And what was interesting about Brother Lawrence was he was different from all the other monks in that he went about his day mumbling to God all the time, talking with God, pausing as if God were actually there. People would stop and go, who, who's, what's he doing? Oh, I'm just talking with God. And th this book records his correspondence. And in it, what you see is a picture of a man who isn't just extremely religious, but he's knee-deep in a relationship that feels real, tangible, visceral. God occupied every space of his day. In fact, the spaces God seemed to occupy most were the spaces we dread, the boredom spaces, the in-between spaces where you're just kneading dough for bread. And it's like, that's downtime. That's podcast time. That's YouTube time. Oh, my brain isn't needed, so I'll just focus on nothing, on stupidity. Let it just pour and wash over my brain. And he says, God is here in this moment, and the mindlessness of this task is God's invitation to actually pay attention to him. And as he did that, God became real to him in a way that Millions of Christians in the hundreds of years since have read and thought, this is possible, and I want that. I actually want to relate to God. So I want to encourage and invite you to think about that. What would it look like if even this afternoon, even though you've already done church for the day and the rest of the day should be devoted to rest and sleep and football and other things, what if sometime today you just paused and got away from everyone else and in that quiet place for just five minutes, ten minutes, I mean, start small. Don't set up a weekend of solitude. <laughs> start with five minutes, ten minutes. And if you're already there, go for the weekend, okay? But listen, what if you ask God things like this? Um, God, how are you feeling towards me today? I know how my parents are feeling towards me. I know how my wife is feeling towards me. 
they let me know a lot. <laughs> There's no mystery there. I could write a book on what they all feel towards me. I wonder, God, how you feel about me and towards me. And I don't want you to just listen for words of hope and affirmation. I love you. You're the best. You know, that's part of what he's going to say. He might also say, you know, sometimes the stuff they say, it's what I want to say to you. I wish you pause and stop fighting the whole world. and Just listen. Really just listen. Receive it. They might say, all those voices around you, they're wrong. Here's the truth. Who knows what he'll say? But what if he just said, what if we asked, how do you feel about me right now? Am I making you happy? Are you proud of me? Have there been times when you've been ashamed of me lately? Are there times when you're knocking your head against the wall going, when will they stop? How about this question? Is there anything you want to say to me? My life is full of voices. You know, we Americans hear 4,000 media messages every single day. If you're a teenager, that goes up double. 8,000 little messages trying to get you to control your behavior for somebody else's goals. What if we paused on a regular basis, even just the first five minutes of every hour, we set an alarm, a repeating alarm, first five minutes of every hour, just paused and said, God, is there anything you want to say to me? How are you feeling about the last hour of my life? How about this one? Are there any priorities you have for me? I know what I've written on my to-do list and in my calendar, but are there any priorities that I don't want to miss? Things that I've forgotten, promises I've made that I haven't kept, things that I've neglected, are there priorities for me that you have that are different than the priorities I've set for this day? You get the idea. It's a real conversation. The way I would have a conversation with you and you would have a conversation with me, except unlike a friendship conversation, there's this beautiful loving authority and power that comes into this conversation. Can you imagine what a difference it would make in your whole life if instead of God always being there was a God whose face you held in your hands, whose eyes you met, whose voice you asked to speak to you, on a regular basis. Can you imagine what that would do for your life, for your relationship with God? I want to ask if you would just join me as we pray together. And it won't be a long response time. I wish we had an hour. I know you don't, but I wish we did. But uh, we've probably got a minute. I just want to invite you. You've heard me speak. I hope in the process you've heard God speak. Why don't you take a moment to say, Lord, we've heard what you said to all of us. I want to now hear what you're saying to me. It's a safe place to ask God that question. So just pause for a second. Ask God what he wants to say to you. And then if you have something you want to say back to God, go ahead and do that. Just take a minute. And then I will pray for us after about a minute of quiet. I'll pray for us. And then we'll invite the, the band to lead us in another song.